Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. This is another one of our extra COVID-19 episodes. The uh, sound quality won't be as good as uh, some of our regular episodes, but the ideas will be as rich and as deep, maybe more so. Today's guest is Nora Bateson. Nora is an award-winning filmmaker, writer, and educator, as well as president of the International Bateson Institute. Her work asks the question, how we can improve our perception of the complexity we live within so we may improve our interaction with the world? What a huge question and how timely. Well, welcome, Nora. Good to chat with you again. Nice to be here, Jim. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's always great to, to talk to you. You just have uh, such a fresh mind, I mean, truly fresh mind. You think about things in ways that other people don't uh, and always interesting. <laughs> so, so COVID-19, complexity, our interactions with the world, you know, time, sense-making. What are you thinking? Well, one thing that I'm, I'm we, we, we were just talking about time before we got started uh, and I think the time question is really uh, there's something interesting happening there uh, because we're all locked in our houses. And for most of us right now, the, the scheduling routines uh, and the clocking of our days, the calendaring of our time is really different than it used to be. Uh, there's not a lot of going and coming happening right now for most of us. Um, some people are still, the essential workers are still clocking in and clocking out, but, but we're in a strange parallel moment. And at first I didn't you know, really notice it, but after um, a week or so maybe, maybe it was two weeks, I just started to notice that this constant din of conversation uh, uh, with family members and friends and so on and so forth about comings and goings, that all of that conversation was actually gone. Mm, very good and, point. And in that, there was a, a, a kind of a deeper level of shifting relationship to time. Um, and one of the other aspects of this is that in the, in the meanwhile, spring is coming. So there's another time happening, um, demarcated by, I don't know where you are, but in Sweden, the, the early flowers are starting to come. And we had a little snow flurry today, but it was just one of those, you know, last flirtations of winter. But it's really spring. And um, so there's this is sort of deep time. And, uh, and, and just very different relationship to time in general. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. And, and part of that, of course, I think is also um, mortality. Uh, I turned 52 today. It's my birthday. Happy um, birthday. Thank you. I'm a full deck of cards now. No one can say she's <laughs> yep. too shy of a deck anymore because I got the whole deck now. 
Um, but this is for me in my life, one of the first times when I started to really think about, um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not over into the high risk zone, but I'm not in the low risk zone. And, um, but that's another sort of question of time. Interesting. Yeah. So you have personal time, which is your mm -hmm. own clock, right? We all, as we get older, I'm quite a bit older than you. We hear the ticking of the clock a little louder every year. Click, click, click. But then we also, as I, uh, you know, I really like your insight into the nature of our local time and the rhythms that we have and now don't have. Yes. Think about how much of our conversations are about our, were about our trivial comes in, coming and goings. That's now gone. May, and probably there are wins and losses from that one that did provide a rhythm to the day but on the other hand it was fairly banal to tell you the truth maybe we're having some deeper conversations i know we are around here at the uh, uh at the rut farm and you know i am in, as you asked where i was i'm up in uh, the mountains of uh, western virginia and we're in a glorious early spring right now where I'm looking out the window at a giant maple tree out along one of our fence lines that's just kind of getting those those yellowish leaves before the leaves go full and uh, our gardens are full of 20 different kinds of daffodils and bloodroot and uh, mm, that sounds the, beautiful uh, yeah this is a place that's just sublime it's one of the things we have talked about more than we normally would have which is how you know, amongst all the bad things of COVID-19, at least it didn't come in the middle of the winter, right? That would have been a soul breaker if this had happened in, you know, mid-December or something. We, and all we could think of is worse and worse weather. At least we have better weather now and, and getting better every day. But anyway, we, you know, this, this different texture of time is quite interesting. And maybe this is a good time to pivot to one of the main things I want to talk to you about is we're all going through a unique experience in world history. Uh, something like this has never happened before. In fact, one of my uh, previous guests, I think it was Jessica Flack, uh, said that uh, one of the most uh, interesting things about this is never has the human race uh, operated cooperatively at this scale. Uh, you know, essentially billions of people are all playing to a theme and variation on the same tune in more or less real time. And then on another, you know, at the other level, the fine grain of our local time is different. We're nowhere near as distracted by all the activity that we spend mm -hmm. our life in. So we have time to think, some of us, uh, you know, what's the other side of this? What are the opportunities and the risks of the other side of COVID-19? Because this too will pass, right? We're, at least here in the United States, we're probably, uh, the numbers I saw from the University of Washington yesterday, we're probably a week from the peak of uh, the total active number of infections. It will then start going down and there'll be all kinds of difficulties in managing the backside of the curve. But at least uh, the, the infectious peak, we're almost to the top of. And so there will be another side. The sun will come out, and what happens? What are the, what are the interesting uh, things on the other side of this, from your perspective? One thing that I think is important to think about is this question of what's important, um, and that's been just put front and center. What is essential? And it started, you know, sort of around questions of who are the essential workers. But also when you go to the store now or you're thinking about what you're going to actually go out into vector world, 
um, to, to purchase, um, there's this question of what's essential and um, do I really need this? And uh, if I didn't get to build a relationship with this person before, is it essential to make peace? And what started to come into focus for me is that, that this experience right now is, can be seen as a kind of interruption. And that, that there was a certain sort of patterning that we were living in, um, for better or for worse. It seems like it had a, a lot of worse side to it, uh, quite a bit of destruction to the ecology and exploitation of people and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, time was moving and we were moving within it, within this, all the systems kind of had their own sort of clocking happening. And then there's this interruption and we're all home or, you know, there's a lot of people who are in hospitals. And that question of what's essential comes in. And I, what I started to sort of reflect upon is this question of, well, which thing is the interruption? Because in fact, I started to notice that it didn't take very long before I was speaking to my children in different ways about making things last, thinking about um, putting vegetables in the garden, um, doing things and thinking about life in another kind of time, another texture, as you put it. And that, in fact, that seems to be much more of a continuation of something that I would imagine my ancestors might have had um, access to that texture of time, where I, I have been in this kind of hectic, kind of metallic time of the modern world, the digital metallic time of, of the last several decades. So where's, which part's the interruption? And um, the, the metaphor I keep thinking of is that, that, that sort of the modernity has offered us the opportunity to just go to the faucet and get water. But this kind of time feels much more like the deep aquifer. And it's the, so I'm just kind of wondering which piece of this is the interruption and which piece is the continuation. Ah, lovely point of view. Lovely. And, and you mentioned the, you know, the different ways we deal with things. I give you a personal example here at the house. Uh, you know, we've been buying supplies once every two weeks. We go to town and do the pickup with our masks and our gloves and all this stuff. Uh, and so we got a little milk and a little bit of it aged out. We're getting a little sour. You know, normally we probably would have poured it out, but uh, you know, instead we just poured it into our yogurt maker, right? And, and as you said, much like uh, particularly my mother's family who were subsistence uh, peasants, essentially, who lived off the land for as far as I know, back to the last ice age, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That was a very interestingly different way than those of us who could uh, just assume we'd run up the road and buy a, a gallon of milk if the milk went a little sour. Uh, and which one's the interruption? Damn good question. Uh, what do you think will be on the other side of this? How many people you, you think will make take this opportunity to reconnect with perhaps uh, 
earlier or, or different patterns? Well, this is kind of where I was going with this is because I, I find that working with complexity, one of the things that, that we do all the time, Jim, is we're constantly trying to help people work out how to think about causation without getting caught in linearity, right? Um, and when you look backwards, it's, it's a little bit more, I guess, it depends on how you're looking, what sort of perception, what sort of lens you have. But if there is the, the ability to perceive in sort of nonlinear ways, you can start to see that this is not really about the virus. It's about the virus's arrival into a multi-systemic fragility that has been cooking for quite a while and so on and so forth. So there's, where's the causality? It's kind of all over the place. Now, what happens when you apply that to the dream or the, the dreaming, the fantasy, the the, the fictioning of what's going to happen next. And it, if you start to think about how you think about the future with that same nonlinearity, um, I think that becomes a really interesting question because so often you get futuristic um, visions that are frankly pretty flat and they, they don't have all that juicy stuff of the details of what kind of decisions and habits you and I and so many other people are actually remaking right now. And I don't think we even know what those details will look like. I just, I, I, you know, what, what if this beginnings of making things last actually took root? What would that do to the economy? What would that do to technology? What would that do to, to just an entire way of life and pace of life if there weren't built-in obsolescence? Yep. Very good questions. And, you know, uh, some of us in the Game B world have used the word liminal to talk about those times when you're entering into a zone where uh, your former experience is less informative uh, about the future than usual. Uh, mm -hmm. And this strikes me as certainly one of those times, right? As you said, I have a sense that there's a great opportunity here for change for the better, but the details, I'm not sure I see them yet and probably won't until we start to live them. Uh, exactly. So, so yeah. do, you think that, do you think this is a great opportunity for people to live different and live their way into someplace better? Yeah, and I think it's a, the, it's a great opportunity to pay attention to the details because the details will, in fact, be what we, the pathways we start to live into. And okay. so it makes a huge difference. Um, and, and just thinking also about being stuck in our various dwellings. Um, some people are stuck alone and some people are stuck with other people, but in either case, there are moments of doing that that are not easy. The people that you love are a lot easier to live in peace with when you are not with them all day, every day. <laughs> right? 24 hours a day. We had a little, little flare-up here yesterday, and I go, oh, dear, but uh, uh, that's life. <laughs> we have to learn to deal. <laughs> that's right, and, and learning to communicate and recognizing in this type of moment that there's a need to be kinder. 
that we can't just close the door and shut it down and be angry or make melodrama or, you know, that that's just useless because you have to actually, you know, if for lack of a better metaphor, if you shit on the floor, you got to sit in it. (laughs) It's like, that's how it is right now. So, and then for those people that are all by themselves, there's also that question of relationship to the self, relationship to other people, how that communication is happening, what that reach out looks like, what the reach in looks like. And so, you know, if the world is made of relationships in interdependency and those relationships start to change, and the communication within those relationships start to change, we're going to see changes. And how the second and third order of those changes start to manifest, I think we have absolutely no idea, but I'm very curious. And, um, and I'm, I'm so hoping that we're not going into police state ugliness. Um, I'm so hoping that this is a possible time for there to be more integrity and carefulness in all the relationships in our lives, from the relationship to our own bodies and and that recognition that your health is not your own health, right? You go into into town to go to the shops and you think, wow, you know, Somebody's there thinking, well, I'm not afraid of this virus. It's not going to kill me. But, but that person, you know, it's like, look, it isn't really about you, right? It's, it's about the, your health is, is my health, is my mother's health, is, you know, this is a multi-generational, m- multi-communal health question. Your health is not your own. And all of those relationships... Um, that perception is shifting. So maybe it's going to be possible to have more integrity, more perception of how, uh, how intertwined the well-being of one and all is. And, and I don't mean that in the kind of hallmark um, systems thinking way. You know, there's this kind of version of systems thinking that can get very uh, meme-ish. And I'm not, I'm not down with that. <laughs> but but I am wanting to push and, and, and explore this idea of what does it look like to actually approach the multitude of relationalities in our lives with a higher degree of attention and integrity. That would be really, really good uh, if this tragedy, which it is, uh, can take us to that better place. Uh, but as you point out, there are other pathways which would not be so good. I mean, we also unfortunately have to uh, keep our political diligence on to make sure that powers that be don't use this, you know, legitimate application of some top-down action in a kind of war-fighting mode to, you know, switch states permanently into a surveillance state or a police state. Uh, So there's also some dangers, and we have to be cognizant of both the opportunities and the dangers and and act accordingly. I was wondering um, what kind of political platforms will come after this. Um, Just noticing, I mean, what's happening with crime right now? Right? What's happening with education? Like all the usual hot topics 
are in a state of transformation. Um, and it's, it's just, there's so much that's in that liminal liquid form right now. It's all very blurry. Yeah, and the basics, you know, sort of how we organize production in our society, it strikes me this, this ought to be, ought to be, if people have ears to hear, not all will, that the relentless drive towards efficiency of the engine of short-term money on money return has clearly taken us to a point of danger. I mean, it's literally danger. If we'd been better prepared in terms of robustness and resilience, uh, mm -hmm. this would have been way less of a problem uh, than it was. I think it also, at least from my perspective, my Game B perspective, uh, it's an argument for subsidiarity, i.e. I, the idea that local communities need to be more self-sufficient efficient, uh, self-governing, uh, need to understand what the explicit ties they have to other regions are, and frankly, work to uh, keep those under control. Uh, you know, for instance, suppose Westchester County, New York, where the first flare-up occurred, New Rochelle, had, organized, had been organizing itself bottoms-up in its relationship with the wider world and had only a certain amount of links out of its county, when this flare-up happened, it had been easy to snip all those links and say, mm -hmm. all right, Westchester County's shut down for uh, four weeks, uh, but we have lots of stockpiles of medical equipment and food and, and such, so uh, we'll get through this just fine. Uh, instead, the relentless attempt to squeeze the last nickel out of everything, where a t-shirt that used to be made in South Carolina in a factory providing uh, a living for a thousand people uh, was shipped off to uh, Bangladesh because at the end of the day, even including transport and everything else, the t-shirt's five cents cheaper, right? Uh, that's, uh, that's the kind of thinking that drives the current uh, I call it insane money on money return engine. And maybe just maybe the fact that this is life and death for actual people who really experience the downside cost of not investing in uh, local, not investing in robustness, not investing in resilience will open people's ears to thinking a little bit differently about how we organize our society. Well, it's that question. You use the word efficiency. And, you know, when you're working on a machine, you optimize for efficiency. When you're working with living systems like societies or families or forests, or you, you cannot optimize for efficiency. You have to optimize for interdependent health. Otherwise, you lose. And so it, there's a, a, a real shift that's possible there and it might be a side effect of a lot of people a lot of businesses going bankrupt um supply chains that could get broken um things that just cannot reboot because they've lost too much uh to catch up again um it this you know will we again see the days of mass quantities of as you say, you know, cheaply produced goods, way too cheaply produced goods that didn't reflect the cost of human life or the natural resources. Um, is there a chance that we may have crossed into a new era of, of recognizing when we don't need something, first of all, but second of all, that you, 
that thing that you want to buy costs a lot more because that's what it actually costs um, without just all the money going to the CEOs. I, I, I don't know what will happen with this. It's like this thing about the toilet paper. You know, it could have been anything that had gotten into people's ideas of, of things that they desperately needed as essential. It could have been the fact that it was toilet paper. It could have been in, in Sweden, it was yeast and flour. You just, you, you can't buy yeast anywhere. So apparently everybody's home baking bread. Yeah, we're doing that. And fortunately, we laid in uh, 200 pounds of flour uh, as part of our long-term emergency hoard. And my wife has her uh, nice sourdough culture. So even though we also have some yeast, even when we run out of yeast, we have our self-replicating sourdough. <laughs> but it could have been anything. And thinking yep. about, you know, when I plant my garden, I noticed, you know, I didn't plant any wheat in my garden. Actually, there's no grains at all in my garden. And so what does that, what kind of, what kind of shift in, in thinking about food is that? So there's just shifts everywhere from how we talk to the kids to how we are with our partners to how we think about the elders to how we, you know, honor and respect the healthcare workers to, um, questions, I think, big questions right now about how science is responding to this and how to respond to a complex problem, how, how, how clean of politics is scientific research and development? How is it possible to get it outside of the economic um, momentum and the various clouds of, of greed and fame and those things that have come in to the culture. So how, how do we begin to even come into these ways in, in, different, in different times there? Because it's, it's a different time now. So what are these things? Six weeks ago, they were on a kind of indelible, uninterruptible, impossible to stop train. And suddenly, the tracks are shattered. For the moment, and I think this is the, the biggest question of all after the shock. Uh, when we think about complex, adaptive, social, biological systems, we often see two different tendencies when a shock is given to the system. One's called homeostasis, which is the tendency for things to knit back together the way they were. That's think of right. your Think of yourself, you have a cold uh, or you have a bruise on your elbow, you know, in two weeks, you're fine again as if nothing had happened. On the other hand, if someone you know, chops off your leg, it's never going to grow back, you know, say in a farming accident. Uh, so you have homeostasis and then you have hysteresis, the tendency for uh, the shock to push us into a new trajectory. And that's what I am just obsessing about. Uh, clearly in the rhetoric, and especially from our politicians, there just seems to be a gigantic libido, at least in the public discourse, to return to normal, return to where we are. And yet mm -hmm. in the world of social change activists, folks like yourself and a lot of other people we both know, uh, we're all seeing this as perhaps an opportunity for hysteresis to move the world in a new direction. What do you think about that? You know, the force for return versus the, the forces for uh, a new trajectory. I mean, I think they're both in play. 
Absolutely. So it's um, some things will go back and some things will change and the things that change will change the way things go back and the things that go back will change the way things change. You know, it's a kind of inseparable process. Yeah. I mean, it, some, there is, that's why I was asking that question about continuing, right? What is continuing and what are the essentials that need to continue? And I think for some people, that essential is, the, is Wall Street. For other people, that essential is um, just intergenerational food on the table. How do we feed the babies? How do we take care of each other? How do we take care of our communities? But then you think, okay, so I would like to put in a garden. I need to get a new hose. And I can't get the hose because the hose has to be brought in from the other side of the world. So there's, there's so many different, um, and this is what I was saying sort of about the, the nonlinearity of future speculation. Yes, yeah, so inter- they interact with each other, uh, you know, our expectations, our experience, and then this is where the hysteresis comes in. The actual effect of this shock, it's back to some things we were talking about earlier in this bubble out of time, uh, that will cause many of us to have thought in, in maybe perhaps more deeply and at least more originally than we had in a long time. And th- those new thoughts will also be part of this unfolding in a nonlinear way. Exactly. And it will materialize in the strangest, most unexpected details. We know from complexity that we can't predict the details, but hey, speculate anyway. Any ideas that, you know, that have come to struck your mind? Now, let's, you know, let's not, let's not say these are uh, Nostradamus-level predictions, but any, any just thoughts on what we might see on the other side? Well, I think we're going to see some shifting in relationships to education for sure. We might see some shifting in relationship to screens because uh, this technology is, but when we get free of this, it seems like there could be uh, a, a kind of saturation point for the addiction that was brewing. You know, I, I, all of that nagging at the children to get off the screens, and now I'm nagging at them to get on the screens and do their homework. And, uh, and I'm on the screens all day long. I can't wait to get off and get outside or do something that's a little more um, analog. My nervous system feels different than it did six weeks ago. How's yours? Uh, my nervous system, I don't know, probably unchanged. I'm a pretty uh, resilient kind of person. I will also say that for the last uh, year, I've been doing most of my work, quote unquote, on Zoom. And mm-hmm. so this change isn't all that big for me. I mean, yes, I still miss my, uh, you know, uh, lunch and get togethers with friends around town and things of that ilk. But, uh, I, you know, I, I don't notice a gigantic difference in my uh, uh nervous system itself now one level up the cognitive state the contents Mm -hmm. the cognitive contents definitely are different and again for the reasons we talked about uh there's more time away from the trivialities for the brain to the cognitive state uh consciousness to wander a field and and poke its fingers into ideas that it never had time for before so i I would make that distinction nervous system feels normal cognitive state feels like it has explored places it normally hadn't. Yeah, 
I can relate to that. I, I did a lot of traveling and public speaking, so I, I'm so happy to be out of airports and hotel rooms. I just can't even tell you. Yeah, that is one of my predictions, by the way, that business travel will not return to anything like the level it had before. Uh, okay. Because because so many of us have now, I mean, I've been doing this for years, but for a lot of people, this is the first time they have seen that, you know, damn, Skype is pretty good or Zoom is pretty good. And, you know, flying from, uh, you know, New York to California to have one one-hour meeting. How many times have I done that in my life? Jesus, uh, takes three days out of my life and costs $2,000 uh, when I could have had, uh, you know, 30-hour-long Skypes uh, in that yeah. time frame. Uh, which one is better for getting work done first, but also consider the environment? Uh, while, you know, computation is not cost-free in terms of the environment, I can guarantee you that a one-hour Skype's carbon footprint is a thousand times less than uh, flying my wide body across the country, uh, uh, staying in an ex uh, a, you know overheated hotel, eating restaurant food, and riding around in taxis for three days. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think this is one of these uh, hysteresis things that will be gigantic. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's for the, for the good. Yeah. I got a puppy this week, and um, that's that's my way of saying I agree with that hysteresis point. Obviously, I'm not traveling for a while. And, uh, and you'll I'm enjoy home. it. You'll be a better oh. person for it, probably. Be Though there will, be some, there will be some losses, probably, frankly, to the other people who would normally interact, interact with you face-to-face, -face, who they will, get, they will lose some of that. Because there is, you know, we are, uh, you know, uh, as I always tell people, uh, young business people who are confused by a business meeting, for instance, I'd say, just imagine the participants in the business meeting as apes with clothes, right? And then suddenly it'll make a lot more sense. And it's amazing. They all go, damn, Jim, I can now understand business meeting, right? Uh, and we are apes with clothes and, and apes do like grooming, right? Being with each other physically. Uh, so there is something lost uh, from uh, going from business meetings to Zooms. But, you know, my hopefully big takeaway here is once the plague lifts, which it will, is to recommit myself to local face-to-face, -face, which is cheap, uh, carbon neutral, uh, you know, just use the old feet, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, invest in building those strong ape-like links with our physical neighbors rather than feeling the need to dash around the countryside uh, and do so. And the local goods as well. So um, I guess one of the other things I'm becoming very aware of is like I was saying about the hose for the garden. There's a lot that's being transported across the world that, you know, it's just unnecessary. So I think that's, that's part of it. Redundancy, local redundancy um, is, is I think going to get picked up. And I, I wonder what, really, what we will be asking of political leaders in the future. I just, I think that the whole, like you were talking about game A, but the whole, that whole existing system got so out of control. It was really at the level of, you know, kind of Marie Antoinette absurdity, just copious extravagance. And paying far too much attention to things that were not essential. And I just hope that, that if there's change, that it's toward paying attention to the essential. 
And for me, that essential is really the, those interrelationships and community, family, relationship to uh, their natural world. Um, you know, health, health. Health is a, is a very precious asset. I love it. I'm going to wrap it up there. I think uh, this will be a, a wonderful exploration of our minds and our possibilities uh, going forward. I'd like to really thank you, Nora, for, uh, for being on the show. Thank you, Jim. It's always such a pleasure. So whenever you want to talk, just give me a call. <laughs> I will take you up on that. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.